3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everyone. Today is the 14th of November and you are listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. I am Will. I'm Judith. Judith. I'm Judith. (laughs) And hi Dean. Good morning Will. Good morning Judith. Good morning listeners. How are we all today? Yeah, good. I mean, uh, it has cooled off a little bit. A little bit of rain out there, but it's Mm. gentle so far. It's going to be a weird kind of muggy day. We're looking at a top of 20 (laughs) and a low of 16. That's that's what it was this morning. Four degrees wiggle room. That's not very much. I know. Anyway, um, so it feels like I'm in a cold, tropical country, if you can imagine that. (laughs) Um, That's what it's like outside. Well, at least Mm. our gardens are getting some water. Yesterday was quite horrible. It got really hot yesterday, even though it was cloudy. Yeah, yeah it did. Didn't yeah. love anyway, it. A lot of we, hay fever going around. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. Don't get me started. Yeah. Um, then, yeah, early polling has started. Yes, yeah. I voted yesterday morning. So did I. Yeah, oh, get it was like 150,000 huh? people or something. Already No, voted. well, that was a, it was a high number. High, like, high a, number. Will be. I heard yeah. 150. It wasn't 150 people. So no, it would have been more than thousands. No, no, probably. You know, I've done yeah. the early voting. This was just oh, on the yeah. news break this morning at 6 o'clock. And I'm like, right, wow. Right. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, that's unconfirmed reports that 150,000 people uh, have already voted. I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> right. confirm them soon. <laughs> yeah, any minute now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Anyway. What's on the show today, guys? Uh, well, we've got so much stuff going. We start really early um, in a couple of minutes with Fiona Patton. Um, yes, from the re- had the Reason Party. Yeah, he's running for Senate yeah. to keep her Senate seat in, for Reason Party. And what were we talking about? Uh, well, we're just going to talk about, you know, uh, well, I'm, I'm wanting to find out how it was for her, you know, uh, coming into Parliament, what she's mm, done and, mm. you know, what she plans. So mm. that's in, in a summary, in a nutshell. Yeah, cool. Mm. Um, it'd be great to cover that because um, yeah. smaller parties aren't getting a lot of airtime. That's right. As we can yeah. um, see in the mass media. Then we've got Greg Denham coming into the studio from the Yarrow Drug and Health Forum. We'll be talking about the outcomes of pre-election policy forum that was held back in the eighth, last week. Yeah. Last week, mm. yeah, last Thursday. Mm. Yeah, uh, with Richard Wynn from Labor, Nina Sp- Springle, oh, Springle ah, yeah. from the Greens, and Fiona and, Patton was there too. Yeah, and she Steve was. Jolly from the Socialists yeah, was there as Judy well. Judy Ryan as well for yeah, reason. Yeah, yeah, it was quite. A, I went along actually, mm. and uh, yeah, it was quite. It was good to hear different people. So the, what were the people mm. after was the take on drug policy. So Greg will Beautiful. tell okay, us more well, about that. We're looking that. forward to hearing more about that, and then um, we're. Hearing from Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth. As well, well, you know, we have, we had that amazing UN and scary UN report on climate change. Mm. So uh, Cam's going to tell us a bit about how that's shaping up for the election. What different parties are are mm. planning? Yeah, yeah. And um, last Friday, I went to a rally on the steps of the State Library of Victoria, um, where we. Uh, heard from a number of speakers speaking on the issue of public housing and the defence of public housing. Um, a lot of you folks listening at home may know because we've covered this in the past that... Um, yeah, it's a huge issue. ...that uh, the yeah. Labor government is planning on selling off um, nine public housing um, estates. They call it public housing renewal. Um, but what will be there after the renewal um, 
in many cases seems not to be public housing according to their plans and so that's what the people were talking about um yeah, de- it of- definitely can't be mm. you know mm. 80% of those up for sale by developers and only 20% going to public housing they're yeah. just staggering numbers yeah, yeah they really are uh and then we'll be uh speaking to Dennis Muller to discuss the anniversary of the media law reform. Yeah, that bill and uh, how it's even further limited the diversity of our media. So always great to get Dennis's Mm. take on that. Yeah, and then we're going to end the show speaking to Lucy Honan, who is an AEU state councillor and message uh, rank and file member. You'll find out what message means at the end of the show. We're talking about two different things that are happening in the education space. There's the Teachers Walk-Off for Refugees, and also there's a No to NAPLAN forum um, happening tomorrow. But first of all, some community announcements. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability at the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival. With over 30 exhibitors and three activity zones, come and try different inclusive sports, meet Paralympians and watch the AFL Wheelchair Challenge. This is a free, accessible, family-friendly event. Monday the 3rd of December from 10 till 3pm at Crown River Walk. For more information, visit dsr.org.au. A 3CR supporter. We broadcasting live from the steps of the Victorian Parliament House in support of Defend and Extend Public Housing's 10-day vigil. Public housing, everybody's business. Join the Anarchist World this week at Parliament House, 10am to 11am, on two Wednesdays, the 14th and 21st of November. And yes, there is more. Also join Talk Back With Attitude at Parliament House, 10 to 11am, Thursday the 15th and the 22nd of November. Make public housing a significant issue for the forthcoming state election. Join us for these live broadcasts on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great and really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. 
And now we're going to welcome to 3CR Win Take Breakfast, Fiona Patton. Uh, Fiona represents the northern metropolitan region of Melbourne in the Victorian Legislative Council and was elected as leader of the Sex Party. And she's on the phone to us now. Good morning. Good morning, Fiona. Thanks for coming on early this morning. I can imagine how busy you are with the election in full flight. Yes, it's it, it's um, yeah the fi- the final the final race um, <clears throat> to the twenty fourth of November. So yes, yeah, of- and and Fiona station. Yeah, so sorry to interrupt. Um, so when you were elected, you were leader of the sex party. You've now changed your name to the Fiona Patton Reason Party. Mm. Why did you change the name? Um, look, it was it was a, it was a difficult decision, and it's something that I you know I started the sex party, so it's still with some regret. But we found that um, more and more people were saying to us, "Look, we love what you're doing. Change your name. We love what you're doing. Change your name." <laughs> I see, um, <laughs> and. And, and the vote, the vote was reflective of that. So, even though we had been very effective in getting things like assisted dying up, getting safe access zones around um, abortion clinics, in the 2016 federal election, we saw our votes go down slightly. I um, see. Yes. So, yeah. So I think it was it was time um, it was time to 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 look at, at at how we could create a future for the party. Um, and and hopefully attract some of the other small parties into more of a I suppose more of a movement than just a political party. So yes, yeah, so that was that was the the idea around it. Putting my name in the party that's just for Victoria and hopefully just for this election. It was just to kind of I suppose provide that connection between the sex party and reason. It doesn't sit very comfortably with me, I can tell you. Uh, right, okay. Well, I, I mean, you were elected and uh, you, I, I'm just really curious, you know, uh, how did it feel when you took your seat in the Victorian Parliament? I think it was, was it four years ago now? Yeah. Um, it was incredibly exciting and uh, but also very daunting. Um, and I've, I have to say I've pretty much loved every minute of it since I've been there, it's an incredible privilege, but you and and you do get to um, you get to learn so many extraordinary things. I mean, as an independent, I've kind of I'm the minister for everything. Yes, so. I, I can understand that. Yes, you've got yes. to have your head across an awful lot. Well, that's right. And as one that has balance of power, quite often your your vote on the issue is really important. So you have to understand the issue. You have to have canvassed it with the community. And and experts and and be able to sort of I guess vote vote with your conscience on on those issues. So that's been it's been remarkable. And be and I think your achievements have been remarkable, really. I mean, I've just looked at some of the bills you've been involved with. Obviously, the medically supervised injecting centre in North Richmond, safe access zones, as you mentioned earlier, around women's reproductive health. Dying with dignity, electoral reform, drug law reform, and I don't think that's everything. But I'm wondering, how did you do it? Yes, um, I, I kind of joke sometimes that it was naivety because I just, if, if you don't know you can't, then you just keep going. Um, but I, I was really a lobbyist prior to being elected, and I've just taken those same skills in there. I think, you know, I haven't horse traded, but I've been really around. 
um, advocating on the issues that I feel passionately about, advocating on the issues that I said I would when I was elected. And, you know, playing well with others. I, I think being able to sort of work both sides of both sides of the parliament and not letting the perfect get in the way of the good. So I've, I've had to be pragmatic. I've had to accept all the, the changes, whether it's getting assisted dying, going or... You're, you're breaking up. It. You're breaking up a little bit, oh, Fiona. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. None of none of it is. Um, none of it has my name. None of it has my name on it um, when it finally passes through the parliament. But I'm I'm not upset about that. I'm I'm very pleased that I was able to get those things up, and just you know, it's about bringing that community support and being able to to argue and advocate successfully in the parliament. And, yeah, I think um, I've, I've been fortunate that the timing has been right for that. Yes, and you've been able to find like-minded people, I guess, across um, the different political parties. That's right. And I think when you look at the major parties, for them to sort of change direction or to take on new policies, there's such giant ships, you know, that it, it is like turning turning a giant ship into a new direction, which is difficult and slow. So being able to be a lot more nimble from the outside and, and nudge them in that direction from the outside has proved to be very effective because we know that within that caucus, you know, the large percentage of people on both sides support um, a lot of social justice issues or support drug law reform. But getting a whole caucus to support it is um, is a lot... It is a lot more difficult. More challenging. Fiona, you're speaking to Dean here. And you you mentioned that you represent uh, reasonable people who want real change for the better. And you just mentioned some of the um, achievements that you had. Are you finding that the major parties are still in that constant political gridlock? And is that why it is hard to to change that ship and move it around? I think it's so difficult. It it saddens me when I see um, the parties voting not on what they truly believe in, but but because of politics. So we've seen, you know, we, we've seen this on so many issues, uh, whether it was um, voter reform, you know, electoral reform, you know, you had the parties kind of agreeing on it, but they couldn't possibly do that uh, in the parliament. Mm. So, yeah, so they, there is that kind of, you know, the, the two heads locking. And that, that doesn't, I don't think that fully, that doesn't work for the community. Having, having, you know, the the upper house in this last parliament had was represent had eight parties represented in it, and I think that has provided with a much greater diversity, and I think it has enabled some really good legislation to to be passed in this last four years. And Fiona, you've said that you've loved every minute of being there, and obviously you've worked hard. So, and you know, you wouldn't be running for re-election, I think, if you haven't hadn't loved it. So, you must have ideas about what's coming next or what you'd like to do uh, if you're re-elected on well, next Saturday, not this Saturday. Yes, Judith. Thanks. I um, I, I do. I, I only really want one more term. I think actually. You know, it's a great privilege to be in there, but it's also, it is, and it is a lot of work. So I think two terms for a person is, is plenty, and then it's it's time to let somebody else have that opportunity um, yes. and that responsibility. But certainly I started, I, I started down the path of cr- 
trying to get greater transparency amongst religious institutions and see some religious businesses pay their fair share of tax. Now, I, I didn't I didn't get all the way on that, so I'm very I'm very keen to keep pushing for that. Um, I'm also increasingly concerned about social isolation in our community. And I think we can we can look at a model that was introduced in the United Kingdom that created a loneliness ministry that was to look that so provides a spotlight onto that. And we are seeing increasing social isolation, whether it's through bad planning, whether it's through um, lack of an ageing stra- strategy, whether it's through disengaging our youth. Um, from, yeah, and, from and there's issues. been sorry, there's been a, quite a lot of coverage of that issue of loneliness lately, showing that it actually is across the population. I mean, different age groups. It, it seems to be quite <laughs> quite prevalent. That's right, and in fact, I think with one Harvard study said that social isolation and loneliness can be the equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day in the impact that it has on your health, that it can actually be more dangerous for you than obesity. Yeah, um, I find that amazing. I, it, it, I mean, it's inc- extraordinary. So I think it, 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 it is really responsible of governments to, to look at this as a preventative measure. So there's that. And, and of course, I want to continue on the path of drug law reform. And uh, I think you know, it, within another four years, I think I could get a long way to us treating drug use as a health issue, not as a criminal one. Um, whether the, and hopefully that would include minimisation methods such as testing. Because yes. there's, quite, there's quite a lot on my to-do list. Yeah, and we will be looking at that uh, on the show this morning, uh, shortly. But uh, yeah, the, certainly drug law reform is a huge, a huge area. And I think you've been recently talking about uh, the four-day week, work week. That's right. I was. This is again. You know, we don't do a lot of long-term planning, and a lot of that has to do with, as Dean mentioned, just you know the the back and forth of the two major political parties. That you know, we flip-flop on infrastructure. And we don't enable ourselves to to have twenty year bipartisan plans, um, and so and we know that at least thirty percent of the jobs that we are doing today will not exist in fifteen years' time. Mm-hmm. So we need to start looking at how technology affects our working lives and how it affects the workplace. And you know, due to automation, we went to a five and a half day week back in the nineteen twenties. Right, so you've been looking at the history, obviously. That's right. So I think looking at greater flexibility in the workplace, um, I think this will, you know, it doesn't only assist in greater productivity and greater work satisfaction, but it can deal with things like congestion. It can deal with things like, you know, a work, the work-life balance. Um, there's lots of benefits to it. Um, I know, you know, it's not a... It's not kind of seen as it's not kind of you don't think it's radical when you know Deloitte's KPMG, Amazon are moving down this path, and New Zealand, um, a large insurance company, trialed it and said they didn't lose any productivity. Right. Um, so, so there's evidence to go on for that. Fiona, we're right. we're running we're running yes, out of, of time. So I really appreciate. Thank you again for coming on. All the best, Thank uh, and we much. will look forward to um, talking to you again in the future. Uh, Hopefully. Thanks, Judith. Thanks, Dean. Thanks, Dean. Bye-bye.
3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 So that was um, Fiona Patton, a leader of the Fiona Patton Reason Party, and uh, talking about some of her ideas for... Uh, if she's elected, so she worked hard, lots of good work, and particularly in the area of drug policy. And um, right now we have in the studio Greg Denham. Thanks for getting up early, coming in, Greg. It's great to have you here. Well, no, it's, uh, um, the opportunity is great. Thanks, uh, Judith. I appreciate um, your invitation. Thank you. Yeah. So um, now I went to the Yarra Drug and Health Forum last Thursday, and it was a special forum on pre-election policy. But maybe before we talk about that, just for people who might not know, what is the Yarra Drug and Health Forum? Well, the Yarra Drug and Health Forum has been um, working in the city of Yarra uh, for over 20 years. It started in the mid-1990s, and it started as a response to basically the heroin problem in Smith Street, right outside, right outside, right outside the radio are. station here, exactly. And uh, Smith Street was known as um, Smack Street at, the, at that point of time. It, there was a glut of heroin in Melbourne, in fact, Australia, and the significant number of overdose deaths in Victoria, greater than the road toll, and it probably is greater than the road toll now, so we've almost gone back to that stage now. Um, and the forum started because people in the area wanted to know more about what they could do in terms of the drug, the drug problem, so to speak. So they formed a bit of a committee in terms of engagement, council got involved, uh, and then eventually we got funding from the department and council, and it's a regular meeting of um, stakeholders in Yarra who talk about and I guess um, put up some initiatives around drug policy changes. Right. And so this pre-election forum would not have been the first if you've been going 20 years. This is something that you do regularly. Yeah, it is something that the forum has conducted um, yeah, over the last uh, 20 years. And it's um, uh, designed basically to get an understanding of what the major parties' policies are and policies' directions are uh, in terms of um, drug policy. So... We're fully aware of what governments and opposition are stating in terms of their policy, but we'd like to know a bit more about the future because we, we can read a lot about what they're saying they're doing now, but we want to know what the future is because we feel that there's a lot of, um, I guess, progressive movement internationally around drug policy reform. And I think the forum uh, would like to reflect that and see how we can promote drug policy reform. Mm -hmm. So who did you invite? Uh, we had Richard Wynne, the local member for Richmond. We had Stephen Jolly from uh, the Socialist Party. We had Fiona Patton, who you just spoke with from Reason Party. And we had Nina Springle, who's the Green spokesperson for um, drug and alcohol policy. Yeah, and how did you feel about what you heard on, on the evening or on the afternoon, late afternoon? Like, 
Are you seeing uh, these politicians taking us into the future? Uh, look, I think so. I, I think, you know, I'm reasonably optimistic uh, in terms of drug policy reform. Uh, I think eight or nine years ago, Australia as such was really, um, you know, had, had kind of fallen into a bit of a black hole around drug policy. And uh, I think over the last eight or nine years, we've seen a lot of progression around drug policy. And that's that's due to a lot of advocacy work, campaigning. And uh, I think a lot of people are starting to realise it's not the big threat that people thought it was a few years ago, you know, that the you know the sky's not going to fall in. If we do have programs such as injecting rooms, pill testing, um, you know, increasing availability of naloxone and other drugs. So in, in terms of drug policy, if you look at overseas at Portugal, Canada, United States, um, things are going well. You know, the, there is a lot of progression and it is a very uh, positive sorry, when, outcome. When you say progression, what do you mean? I, I think just, uh, I guess, addressing the, the outcomes from the war on drugs and, and the harm that's caused by the war on drugs and a focus specifically around the justice system and policing to deal with mm -hmm. drug issues, more health-oriented outcomes. That's what we're looking for. And, Greg, I guess um, I know that uh, VADA is the peak body and you're obviously representing the Yarra Drug and Health Forum. Do you speak with other councils or other uh, drug um, departments in other councils just to get a bit of an understanding as to whether you're all in unison or whether they're quite different challenges that you all face? Well, I, I attend regular meetings of um, local government, yep. so there's quarterly meetings and I speak to them about um, issues related to Yarra and uh, they're always um, very, very supportive of what we're doing and they always supported the the injecting room, mm. um, and that was one of our key campaigns over the last probably 20 years, but 10 years in particular. Yeah. Um, and so, so momentum is building. Look, I think in, if you ask people about drug policy, they would say, oh, look, it's not working. We know it's not working. You know, we need, we need changes. And I think mm. it's up to people such as myself and Fiona and others to provide that um, pathway, to provide that, that roadmap to say, okay, it's not working. Where do we go? Look, I'm a former police officer. I speak to lots of police. I work internationally with police. And I talk to police a lot about drug policy. And they will tell you it's not working, the system yeah. we've got. Even Ken Lay said, we can't arrest our way out of this issue. So we, as experts in the area, need to provide that pathway. We need to say, OK, it's not working. This is a direction that we need to go. And you've done that well with the safe injecting room in Richmond. And then I think, well, why wouldn't Springvale or the city of Monash get onto that idea, maybe because the community is not so involved. But I know Springvale has that type of drug problem as well, and the safe injecting room getting up in Richmond has been quite a successful campaign. Yeah, it has, um, and certainly you're right. If you look at places like Springvale, Footscray, areas of St Kilda, um, there, there is certainly, I think, um, a need, certainly the area around North Richmond and Abbotsford. Um, I, I've travelled a lot. I've been fortunate to travel a lot and, and, and see many places, but I don't think I've ever seen uh, such a, uh, an extensive drug market as I've seen down in North Richmond. So there is a specific need. It is, it is a two-year trial, and I would hope that once it's been assessed, evaluated, that we can say, OK, we can learn from what we've done and we can use that model in other areas. But I certainly think, where, particularly where there's public injecting, where there are people who are drug-affected, where there's a significant demand on emergency services, overdose rates are high. They're the areas where we need to say, OK, let's look at a, an option such as a supervised injecting facility. I was recently in Toronto where there's um, a small a small injecting room part of a community health centre. Now, there's no reason why that model can't be used in other places in Melbourne as a place where people can go off the street to use. And you mentioned, Greg, that, uh, you know, that the injecting room is one part of a, a big picture. 
You were heartened, I think, by what you heard on Thursday from the political candidates. And what you're saying now reminds you of something Judy Ryan said, who's from the Reason Party. And what she was saying, she thinks the community is quite further ahead of the politics or the politicians in many ways. She mentioned the injecting room, but she also talked about a marriage equality. And she feels that, you know, on the ground, there is movement. Certainly. I think you're right. If you look at the surveys of people, and there are surveys conducted every three to four years through the National Drug Strategic Framework, in, in, in specific terms, I guess cannabis is the issue which people are saying, we need to change the law. You know, why do we charge people um, with cannabis possession and use when um, in many other parts of the world they're saying you can actually um, legally have cannabis and use it? And if an adult decides, you know, that they want to use cannabis and they're aware of the health consequences, let them use it. You know, it's about people's choice. And I firmly believe a person makes a choice, uh, a choice about what they want to do for themselves. As long as it doesn't harm others, then they should be able to make that choice. And and cannabis has just been legalised. Well, I just, I just want to come to that because you mentioned you're in Canada and I was in Canada too in the summer and Justin Trudeau had promised cannabis would be legalized in the summer, mm. but it didn't happen. So I was just a little bit envious that you were there for the moment. So I thought maybe you could give us an eyewitness account of what happened, like you got up that morning. Well, it was more of a nose witness account, actually. I was walking down the street and I could, couldn't help but smell lots of sm- smoke um, as a result of cannabis use. And, uh, and I arrived the day after it had been legalised. So, I see. Yeah, yes. so it had been legalised on the 17th. I arrived on the 18th of October. And uh, there have been, um, I guess, illegal dispensaries operating in Toronto for quite a while, which the police have kind of turned a bit of a blind eye to. Um, they've all of a sudden become... 50. There was 15, now there's 50. Um, but then it's not available through dispensaries yet. It's only available in Ontario, in the province of Ontario, through um, or on law, online Yeah, which is one of orders. the most populous, mm. uh, yes, highest right. population. Yeah, and you yeah. can grow four plants, but not in Ontario, where I was at the moment, not until next right. year. So it's, it's a bit like Australia. States are deciding how they'll implement it and, and mm-hmm. to what extent they'll implement the law, which, as you say, is a federal law. So it's been promulgated. It's, it's legal now, but now the states have to decide how they're going to go about it and, what, and how they progress it. Yes. And, and of course, in the recent election in the U.S., there were four states putting up legislation as well to be voted yeah. on, two for legalization and mm. a couple for medical use. So, A yeah. lot of people from Illinois won't have to drive to Colorado anymore. They can just go <laughs> over the bridge and Canada's population will triple. Yes. <laughs> That's all true. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I felt, listening to what people were saying, that certainly it did feel like a movement. But the Liberal Party wasn't there, unfortunately. No, they were invited. Uh, they declined. Um, I think, um, you know, we're coming up to an election, obviously, because that's why we ran the forum, but uh, they've decided not to run a candidate in that oh, seat as well. So, um, And they've also said that they will close down the injecting room if they get into power. So that remains to be seen. Um, so obviously, um, they decided that um, it wasn't um, an opportunity for them to, to state <laughs> yeah. their policy, so they decided not to um, not to come along, which was a disappointment. Um, we st- we do have a um, a reasonably good relationship with with the Liberal Party. We do meet with them quite often, and we do talk about the issues. I know there is support within uh, the Liberal Party for um, the, the injecting room. There has been in the past, but um, that's their that's their party um, platform to, right. to close it down, which we're very disappointed about. Yeah. Well, Greg, thank you so much for coming in this morning and uh, bringing us up to date and kind of what's going on in, in within drug policy, what it's looking like uh, in the election and lots of things to think about there. 
So congratulations. There's lots of, lots of things to think about. Lots yes. of things to think about. Yeah, <laughs> from safe and more safe injecting rooms to legalizing cannabis. To and, and pill testing. Pill testing is the yeah. other issue, right. which I think now yeah. um, we should be pursuing because yeah. it clearly has benefits, as we saw in Canberra um, earlier on this year. So. Yeah. And, and if we and get big, sorry. No, I was just saying, people obviously can go to the Yarra Drug and Health Forum website just to have a look at some of the things you're committed to identifying and responding to, especially with the health and needs and social needs of the yeah. community of Yarra. Yeah, well, we meet on the first Monday of every month at okay. the Richmond Town Hall, twelve thirty till um, 2 o'clock. So anybody can come along. It's an open forum. So we're always, always looking. Um, and, and there's sandwiches. There are very good sandwiches, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Thanks very much. You'll listen to 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. you got to remember, Nainok's a special day for us, fellas. As a reminder, who we are... Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcast. Happy NAIDOC! For 10 days in November, Defend and Extend's public housing will be campaigning on the steps of Parliament House to make public housing an election issue. Public housing, everybody's business. Join us anytime from Wednesday the 14th of November, that's midday the 14th of November, to Saturday midnight the 24th of November and put the spotlight on public housing this Victorian state election. Use Victoria's stamp duty revenue approximately $6 billion plus per year for public housing, house one million Victorians by 2029. Public housing, everybody's business. Join us. Bring tea, bring coffee, bring cakes, bring food, bring your musical instruments. And most important of all, bring yourself and your sleeping bag. Well, that was um, great to talk to, to Greg Denham. And now we're moving on to another issue that will be uh, important in this election. Um, just over a month ago, the United Nations uh, released its a report, a very worrying report on climate change and the things that are going to need to happen. So obviously we need to... I, I actually think it's just sinking in the implications of that report, and some people have even said it's not strong enough. Mm. Yeah, so Cam Walker's joining us now from Friends of the Earth, and uh, he's going to talk, and we're going to talk to him a bit about, you know, how the different parties are stacking up around uh, climate change, the environment in this election. So welcome to 3CR, Cam. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. And um, so 
I understand that, um, you know, I know Friends of the Earth continually keeps an eye on what's going on politically around climate. So I'm hoping you can just give us a a kind of um, bird's eye view, if you like, about how climate or the environment shaping up in this coming election. Sure. So it's, it's quite interesting, actually, in that climate or at least energy policy has been quite uh, a feature of this election. As we know, with state elections, it's normally more bread and butter issues. So education, health, transport, infrastructure, that sort of thing. But energy policy really is has been quite significant in this election. The other big issue that's especially emerging now in the last couple of weeks is forests. So they're the big ticket issues when you think of environment. So energy policy, stroke climate plus forest campaigning. Yes, I, w- I was noticing that too. I think I just read an article about how important forests and trees are for in, in the whole you know, um, a group of policies that we need to look at in the area of climate change. And um, I noticed on Monday, just on Monday, the Victorian Liberal Party released a statement on power supply and power prices. Uh, saying if it if it's elected, it'll call for tenders, and I'm quoting exactly from their statement: will facilitate the construction of a new Victorian power station. Um, they do say it could include hydro, wind, solar, gas, or coal, or a combination of those. Those. I'm wondering what uh, how Friends of the Earth has responded to that statement. Well, it is good that they've finally put a statement out there. It's very close to the election and they've left it very late. The one good aspect about this uh, policy is that they intend to build the new capacity in the Latrobe Valley, ideally, and that's going to be good for the valley because, as we know, that's going through a time of transition. It's not a huge amount of electricity. It's 500 megawatts, so, uh, you know, the larger power stations tend to be close to 2,000 megawatts thereabouts, so it's, it's not a huge amount. They'll do it through a, a kind of tender process for 10-year contracts, and it will cover major energy users in the state, and they say that probably will include schools, hospitals, and the transport system. And they say it may be from a range of sources, but the important thing to understand is their modelling was done on gas. So the assumption here is that they're going to either build gas. Uh, the, the Liberal politicians have also said if coal, quote, stacks up, then they would consider that. So we've said this is very backwards-looking, like the time for new fossil fuel uh, investment is long over. You referenced the IPCC report and, you know, it makes it clear we've got to keep remaining fossil fuels in the ground. We can't be creating new sources of use for fossil fuels for energy supply. We have a great thing here called the Victorian Renewable Energy Target, which is really ramping up the development of renewables in the state. We have more and more solar. We're part of the national electricity market. So we're part of the grid. We just don't need fossil fuels. So on face value, it kind of looks okay, but, you know, it's good it's in the valley, but it's very worrying that they're countenancing the idea of either gas or coal. And, frankly, we actually don't need new supply from those sources. We don't need the old-fashioned concept of base load. The debate has moved on a long way from that. What we need is a variety of inputs that can go into the grid at different stages in the day. And how are the other parties looking uh, in relation to this? So, you know, other, I mean, I guess the term policy is, um, I mean, we, it can be used rather loosely, but often it's not a whole policy. Like to me, a policy means, you know, a comprehensive plan on climate change and the environment. So we're not necessarily saying that. But what kind of ideas are coming through from the other parties? 
Yes, yeah, so with the Liberals, we haven't seen a comprehensive policy and the junior partner in the coalition, the Nationals, are even worse. They have been talking about building new so-called high-efficiency, low-emissions coal in the Trobe Valley. So they're kind of at one end of the spectrum. Um, the Greens have a plan for 100% renewables, which has been costed, which is uh, pretty inspiring and very exciting. And the ALP just last week, who have created the Victorian Renewable Energy Target, and that is what's driving the transition um, they've done auctions this year for almost a thousand megawatts of power from uh, solar and wind, so that's new build renewables. So that's very good, and they've just extended the VRET target, the renewable energy target, to uh, mean that by 2030, at least half of our energy must come from renewables. So the, the Greens have a plan to get to 100%. The ALP have committed to 50%. Sadly, the coalition, you know, are kind of you know way off somewhere else, and they mm. really don't have a comprehensive plan. Now, I know that whichever party is elected, you'll be keeping a close eye on what they do and uh, I think holding them to account (laughs) to some extent. But what would you like to see happen in Victoria? I mean, what you're seeing right now, is it stacking up for what's needed? We are not moving at the scale and at the pace that is required if you read climate science. So we're still going far too slowly, uh, but at the same time we have to admit that Victoria is now a leader and partly that's a result of the federal government comprehensively failing us on energy and climate policy. So we would want to see the leadership continue that is being set by Victoria. If the coalition get in, we'd be very worried that they would gut the Climate Change Act and that they wouldn't set emission reduction targets. So that's a very big thing for next year is we need to set the emission reduction targets for 2025 and 2030. And we see that as the key way to drive down emissions uh, in the state as we build renewables. So that's really the main game, I think, at the local level next year. The other thing is we've got a moratorium on onshore gas drilling. So that will be really interesting to see how the parties react to that because there's investigations going on. And next year and the year after, there'll be a decision about whether to lift that or sustain it. I see. So that's something for everyone who's voting, I guess, to be better informed about and to know more about. Um, so I'm I'm thinking that, you know, whatever happens, Friends of the Earth is going to be on the case. Have you got any campaigns coming up in particular? Yes, well, we're letterboxing everywhere at present uh, around forests. If people are interested in where the parties stand on forests, just do a search for voteforests.org.au. Um, I think we've led a box something like 150,000 households around Melbourne in the last couple of weeks. We're working very hard to get forest protection on the agenda of all parties. And then, of course, uh, you know, now with the Liberal uh, energy supply policy released, I think that's kind of it when it comes to climate change and energy. The Greens and the ALP have made their positions clear. So I think at this point in the last 11 days or so that we have, we'll be focusing very strongly on forests. The other thing we think that is a a no-brainer and could be achieved very easily through a commitment from any of the parties would be to run our metropolitan train network on renewables. Our trams will soon be running on renewable energy, which is fantastic. The logical next stage is to run our trains also on renewables. And that could, you know, any of the parties, the Greens support that already, but any of the other parties could support that this morning, make it a commitment and then make it happen next year. And Cam, just quickly, I wasn't sure whether you uh, were aware, but it was interesting to see that uh, Victoria, sorry, the Labor has pledged 
um, to raise their renewable energy target up to 50% by 2030, which is, um, you know, it, it's always interesting to see the opposition and also um, the party that's in power, how they view where they want to be and what timelines they put there. So for organisations like yourself, it's about making sure that you keep them honest, isn't it? Oh, absolutely it is. So that 50% target by 2030 brings them in line with the federal ALP. Mm. Uh, the Greens plan is well ahead of that yeah. and we, we will continue to push them for ambition. Um, the way we will increase that ambition is the conversation around the emission reduction target, so driving down greenhouse pollution. But the other thing we really need to keep um, an eye on is we're only seeing this uptake of renewables because of the renewable energy target, yeah. the VRET. The Coalition have said they will kill off the VRET if elected, so that's going to be a really major focus of us to keep an eye on that next year. And what you just touched on seems like the most simple idea. Why can't we have trains? <laughs> running on on that and, and, and trams, you know, just we're building this new metro rail. There's a perfect opportunity to try and implement those systems now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and a number of overseas jurisdictions they run their train network on renewables, and the requirements of our train network. We have looked at the figures. It's actually only one new medium-sized wind farm would power our entire metro train network. Regional trains are harder because they're running on diesel, uh, but the metro network is all electrified, so it would be very easy to transition it at not a great cost. And, and you know, we've still got a, a little bit of time, like 10 days maybe, before the election and time for people to release more policies. So uh, <laughs> who knows what's coming down, you yeah, know? There'll be a new one every day, I think. And there might be. So let's, uh, let's hope there's a few more uh, advancements towards, you know, renewable energy and uh, climate change and um, some, you know, interesting statement, as you pointed out, you know, the, the parties have time to address these issues. They do indeed, and particularly on forests, we're hoping to get some good announcements before the, we get to the election. Well, Cam, thank you so much for coming on, and I think if the Earth ever needed friends, it does right now. So uh, thanks, Cam Walker, Friends of the Earth. Thank you. Each year, 3CR celebrates International Day of People with Disability. I want choices and rights. Join us on Monday, December 3rd from 7am to 7pm for a day of dedicated programming. Hear our voices on the issues that matter to us. The right to access, education, empowerment, pride, to creativity and expression, to freedom from discrimination and violence. Tune in on December 3 from 7am to 7pm on 3CR. And join the fight for the choices and rights of disabled people. <laughs> I thought that was good enough, yeah? Excellent, Dan. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and 
let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian starves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. And you are back with 3CR Community Radio. Now, next up, we're going to some recordings that I took at a rally last Friday. The Public Housing Defence Network organised a rally in support of public housing against the Victorian Labor government's sell-off of nine public housing estates in the name of Renewal. Uh, So, first of all, we're going to be listening to some interviews that happened um, before and after the rally. Uh, I spoke to Sheridan Tate, who's the Greens candidate for the seat of uh, Broadmeadows and is also a public housing resident. And I also spoke to a public housing resident called Elif. Uh, Professor Libby Porter from RMIT was also there, who's also quite active in the public housing defence space in Darabin. And also uh, I spoke to... uh, Sue Bolton, who's a candidate for the Senate uh, with the Victorian Socialists. We spoke to Sue recently on public transport. That is correct, yeah. 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 I think it was just um, last week or the week before. So um, that'll be the last voice you hear, and I will back announce all of the the interviewees. But let's uh, let's take it away. Public housing here to stay. Green developers, go away. Public housing here to stay. Green developers, go away. Public housing here to stay. I'm um, Sheridan and I'm a resident of um, Broadmeadows and Broadmeadows is, um, it's got a very high um, public housing sort of demographic and I'm here because um, as a community member that lives in that sort of area and I'm involved with the Broadmeadows Progress Association and I'm also the candidate for Broadmeadows for the Greens people on low incomes, um, people that might be on welfare payments, disability, migrants, um, refugees, um, yeah, people that that would not have housing if it wasn't for public housing because they simply, not only is it a struggle for them to afford, that they're not often looked at, at by private real estate agents to... Yeah, it's a struggle for them even to to get into the private market because that their income is deemed too low. So yeah, so it, it's an asset. It's an asset of the public. It doesn't belong to government. They're they're guardians of that asset. They're the caretakers of that asset, and they've got no right to sell that asset off. That asset should always be used for the public good, not to service. Um, profiteering by private individuals. It belongs to the taxpayers of the country and we're all taxpayers regardless. Um, so it, it's, it's our asset and it's not theirs to use and abuse. Professor Libby Porter, I'm a researcher at RMIT University and I'm the convener of the Darabin Community Friends of Public Housing. 
I think people have forgotten the importance of public housing because we've, um, in Australia historically, uh, we have not been very good um, investors in public housing and we've always seen public housing as a, uh, as a kind of welfare net, um, or largely, certainly in the last... 25, 30 years, um, and I think that's a real problem because actually public housing is uh, an integral part of our social fabric, and if we don't all get on board with what it means to protect public housing, we're not understanding the importance of the right to be housed for every single person in our community um, and the, the value and importance of looking after the most vulnerable in our community. We have a view in Australia that uh, if, you don't, if you're not an owner-occupier, you've somehow failed some universal basic test of humanity, um, that you haven't achieved your full potential as a human being. Uh, so as a private renter, you know, that smacks of, to some degree. Um, and I think we apply an even worse form of um, sort of patronising view to people um, who, who need to find themselves in public housing um, and instead of celebrating the fact that we have a, um, you know, a way of providing housing for everybody, we turn it into something that's, uh, that's a, something that we should be ashamed of um, and you need to sort of get out of, escape from, rather than celebrate the fact that it's a, an integral part of our housing system. So. You know, we own, we should control together as a community um, or, or should coordinate and collaborate together to uh, produce the forms of housing that will keep people off the streets and ensure that they are able to live the, f the fullest lives that they can possibly live. Um, we shouldn't just you know, ask other kinds of organisations to, to, to solely take that responsibility. Uh, and I think we lose a sense of what it means, the public value of doing that, the public benefit of doing that, um, when we um, essentially delegate it or outsource it to uh, other organisations, even if, when they are not-for-profits and even when they are um, so quite often good organisations. They're, they're still effectively um, private organisations. Yeah, my name is Elif and I live in... Um Ascot Vale, public housing, and I've been living there since I have arrived Australia. So, um, how long is that? That's uh, about 15 years now. Yeah, and also I've been volunteering in the community centre. It's it, um, right in the middle in the estate. Also, there is a beautiful community garden just next to it, and also volunteering there too. And um, it's a lovely community, beautiful place. I love uh, living there, especially the community. People become like a family. So why I'm here is I want to save the public housing because of the community bond. And yeah, when they build the high-rise apartments, we will lose it. Um, what I heard is they're going to privatize. That, that land uh, and it's not only in Ascotwell, in other um, estates too and I'm against that. It's a public land and it, it uh, should remain that way. Yeah. Yes, there can be redevelopment of existing public housing estates but it can be done in a way that doesn't destroy the public housing communities on those estates. So you could redevelop the worst block, the most um, uh, damaged block within a particular state so that just those people would have to move out while it's being fixed if it's, if it's structurally unsound if it's not structurally unsound and it's just um, needs to be um, sort of more cosmetic kind of changes then you probably don't even need to um, 
relocate everyone in that block while you you could just relocate some flats while you fix them and then they, those people can move back in and fix other flats and you know so it doesn't need to dislocate a whole community. I gather some states, New South Wales and South Australia I think, um, have introduced fixed term leases in public housing. We would be opposed to that um, because your public housing is your home and the reason public housing, like close-knit communities develop in public housing is because it's long-term permanent tenancies and of course you can, it doesn't matter if you're in private rental, home, buying your house from the bank or public housing, there can always be people around or in, in your housing or around your housing who do anti-social things I mean, because it happens in society, it's not to do with public housing per se. Communities develop because it's long-term permanent housing and that's really difficult to develop in private rental because if you're moving every six months then um, you know people are working long hours, they've got kids, all of the various commitments people have. Um, it's hard to get to know your neighbours and then you move on and then the new set of neighbours then you move on. And because people aren't able to stay in public in, uh, private rental terribly long unless they strike it lucky and find a really good landlord who's not trying to make a mint out of it and is happy just to have good tenants and maybe it might be a bit of a supplement on top of the pension or whatever but that those sort of landlords are few and far between now and so um, and so public housing allows communities to develop in a much more real way because you get to know who it's safe to leave your kids with. So if there's an emergency, you know who you can ring to leave your kids. If your money hasn't come through, whether it's your wage or your benefits, then you know who you can borrow money from and other people know that they can borrow money from you. If their payments haven't come through, you know who you can drive to the doctor. You know, like there's, you know, there's that sort of sharing and collective community that develops. And in Grand Place in West Brunswick, which is the estate I'm most familiar with, um, there was a, a extended family of Cook Islanders, and there were three or four generations of the family living there, and they were devastated about being for relocated. Now, two of the families have been forced out. Governments are trying to use the idea of social stigma as a way of getting people who don't live in public housing to accept the destruction of public housing. Or they want people to think, oh, we, can, um, we need a private-public mix, um, almost like people who are private uh, owners or private tenants need to teach public housing tenants how to live. I mean, mm. in reality, that's what that means. It's yeah. really patronising. But... I mean, the reality is public housing uh, estates are within the communities of private housing already. Mm. And, you know, I mean, they're part of the community, sending their kids to school. Mm. So school kids, you know, be public, private. You know, so we're mixing all the time. So it's a furphy argument. And just before those chants, uh, greedy developers stay away, public housing here to stay, uh, we were hearing the voice of Sue Bolton, who is the councillor for Moreland, uh, Moreland councillor, 
and also running uh, as a candidate for the Victorian Socialists. Next up, we're going to be hearing some of the speeches from the Public Housing Defence Network um, operated uh, rally that happened last Friday. Speeches are, uh, as far as I can remember, actually, yeah, they're entirely people who are currently living in public housing. Um, living in public housing and um, have something to say. There was a really great speech given by um, Dr. Joe Toscano, who folks listening at home may remember from uh, Anarchist World this week, um, who's also running as an independent candidate in Albert Park and will be um, running that uh, 10-day camp out on the steps of Parliament, uh, state Parliament, to make public housing an um, election issue. Um, but we're only really going to be hearing speeches from the people who live in public housing in this next segment. So uh, stay tuned in, and here we go. The Public Housing Renewal Program is an ambitious plan by Labor to privatise 11 metropolitan housing estates under the guise of renewing public housing. At the moment, these estates are 100% publicly owned assets. But if the Labor government has its way, the end result will be that most of the public land gets sold off, there'll be a massive construction of private units and a very small increase in so-called social housing. But since the plan is to build mainly one and two bedroom units, this will actually result in a decreased capacity to house people. So the big winners in all of this will be the property developers and private housing. With a waiting list for public housing of 58,000 adults and 25,000 children, both Labor and the Liberals really have their priorities screwed up. And to add further insult to injury, the new social housing units are unlikely to be public housing, but owned or managed by community housing businesses. Social and community housing might sound similar to public housing, but they are very different. Under the Residential Tenancy Act, they are the same as private landlords. Richard Wynne, in opposition, called the transferring of public housing to community housing a cruel hoax. But in power, Labor has followed down the same path as the Liberals did before them. And be warned, as massive as the public housing renewal program is, this is just the beginning. More transferring of public housing stock and management have been planned, starting with a decision by Labor to hand over 4,000 public housing tenancies. State governments have no right to privatise our public housing. Public housing belongs to the public, the people of Victoria, now and for the future. A robust public housing sector is our insurance that nobody gets left behind. In this prosperous country, too many people are living in housing stress, couch surfing or living in their cars. Others are forced to live on the streets, out in the elements, because they have nowhere to go. Still others have to live in overcrowded and unsafe rooming houses. In short, when it comes to their housing needs, more and more Victorians are living in misery. Meanwhile, the politicians and their big business associates at the top end of town steal and transfer the very thing we cannot afford to lose, which we need much more of, which is public housing. Thank you very much. I'd like to introduce me 
introduce you to a very dear friend and neighbour of mine, Sabla Gurma. Thank you. Hello, good afternoon. Um, thank you for having me. But I don't have much to say because you already said it. But all I want to say is just, we all have to stand for our right. I think we deserve to save this public housing for our kids. It's our kids' future. Um, public housing, thank you. A public housing means a lot, especially to me. Um, I've been in public housing the last 15, 14 years. Um, almost I grew up there. And I don't feel lonely. I came from a different country, different language, different culture. Um, when you go to public, like private areas, there is no one to talk to you. There is no one to say hello, no good morning. I didn't grow up in that society. I grew up with big family, big community, which is we eat, we um, coffees in the morning, the whole neighbors together. It's different culture. When I came to Australia, first time I arrived in Putskray, which is in um, private, was so it was depressed for me. No one say hello. I never, I never get any hello, even good morning from my neighbors. I was very young. So since I started living in public house, I feel like home. I love the community. We are just like a family. We all live together. We eat together. We all stand for each other. So I think it's a time to save a public house. Um, save public housing. That's all I want to say. Thank you. I'm a community housing tenant, unfortunately. My father was raised in public housing. My sister lives in public housing. Now, we can't sell off these properties that were purchased through the Slum Reclamation Act during the 60s and 70s to private enterprise. They were purchased through the owners who they were purchased off at the time only got 75% of the market value of the property at the time the then Housing Commission purchased them. That's number one. Number two, they were purchased for future building of public housing on them. And the future for building of public housing has arrived. We have 85,000 people on the waiting list to be housed and Martin Foley is only building 1,000. And that was only after the pressure of people like you people, Fiona, Eileen, I'm sorry Eileen, my brain, I had a brain freeze. Now, we cannot transfer property to community housing providers. My community housing provider is one of the worst in the state. I have almost been made homeless twice, if not for the fact that I knew and played the game, um, I would be homeless on the streets with my son. I was told when I needed a modification that they had contacted my orthopedic, my OT, to find me a property in the public housing system. And when I said that the transitional program was, and I left my arms open, they laughed and said it's diabolical. They don't care. At the end of the day, it's all about money. When my son moved out, the first thing they told me was, we need your property to pay a mortgage. They don't have a mortgage on my property. The council gave them the land. They got funding to build 
on the property, so where's the mortgage? They didn't have one. And if I, I know a lot of tenants in my provider have lost their homes because this provider will lie and tell them anything they to get what they want. Like for example, they will put the rent up three, four times a year. And if you say that that goes against the Residential Tenancy Act, we'll take you to VPAC, they will tell you, well, we've won the last 20 times at VPAC, so we'll put the rent up. They know full well the tenants won't fight it because they're too afraid to be homeless. And that's how they pitch people homeless and they get properties. They have to have a minimum amount of income to pay their wages, to pay the overheads. In the last six months of the last financial year, they put on eight new staff. Now that's at a cost of approximately $500,000 annually for increased wages, work cover, annual leave loading, paperwork, extra desks, etc. And this comes out of the rent that the tenants are paying. No, they don't. If anything, you've got to be smarter than them. I have been labelled dangerous by my my um, housing my housing because I knew know the rules and I understand their policies and then I, I work those. Well, <laughs> join the club, mate. So we've got to stop this transition over. They've received millions of dollars to build housing and last financial year they built only what 530 how many millions did they get to build those 530 i'd hate to think thank you And that was audio from last Friday's Public Housing Defence Network rally in support of public housing. I should mention that also speakers included Sam Ratnam, who's the leader of the Victorian Greens, and Sue Bolton, who we've mentioned a couple of times on the show, so you already know that um, Sue Bolton is a councillor and also running for Victorian Socialists. Um, The people that you heard in that recording, though, were all public housing residents and activists, Fiona, Sablagoma and Martina, um, and I just found it really valuable hearing their voices. Um, it's always great to yeah. hear from the people who are effect- most affected Absolutely. by these kinds mm. of policies. Yes. And again, yeah, that rally was run by the Public Housing Defence Network. We'll be right back. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesday Breakfast. Yes. Hi. Hi. We're from Abra College, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. On 8.55am. Woo! Great Voices CDs on 3CR. These CDs are a unique collection. Now you can go to 3cr.org.au and you can order online all the 20 CDs, 15 issues, for $160 postage pay. Or check the individual issues and read each track on them. Every major singer is on there. You'll be excited and entranced. Go to 3cr.org.au now and check out the wonderful Great Voices CDs. Hi, this is Rafiv Ziada and you're listening to 3CR Pro-Palestinian Happily Proud Radio. 
Tune in, dig deep and clean up by purchasing some fantastic discounted gardening books from 3CR's online garden store. We have books on water-wise gardening, organic vegetables, roses, climbers and creepers and even clematis. It's easy. Just go to our website, 3cr.org.au, and follow the links on the front page. Don't have internet access? Call the station during business hours between 9 and 5, and we'll post out a catalogue in the mail. All proceeds help keep Melbourne's favourite gardening show on air for another year. Tune in 7.30am every Sunday morning. And welcome everyone to 3CR if you've just tuned in and if you've been with us all along, I hope you're enjoying the show. Now, Dr. Dennis Muller is on the line. He's a research senior research fellow at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, leading expert on media ethics and publishes regularly in the conversation. This morning he joins us because we're going to talk about... Uh, the, it's, I think it's about an anniversary of the media, the Broadcasting Legislation Amendment Media Reform Bill. So welcome to 3CR, Dennis. Thank you, Judith. And it's great to have you back. And um, we just thought we'd revisit uh, the, this bill. And maybe you can just um, let our audience and the people listening know, you know, kind of what were the implications of this bill? Well, basically what the bill did was to remove the restrictions that had been in place for 30 years that prevented the owners of a television station from owning a newspaper in the same market and vice versa. So you could have a newspaper or a television station, but you couldn't have both in the same market. So the bill removed that limitation. And... The rationale behind it was that in this internet age where the local media are under sustained pressure from the big, big global platforms like Google and Facebook, they needed to get bigger themselves. That was the rationale. Right. So, so it was kind of responding to the digital age in a yeah, way and the scene, the argument. Yeah. yeah so um, we all foresaw, everybody watching this sort of stuff, foresaw that this would lead to mergers and of course the biggest merger that's ensued from it is the merger between uh, Channel 9 and Fairfax under a, a banner now called 9 Entertainment um, and that and, and Fairfax of course own Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and Financial Review, The Sun Herald and a whole heap of regional papers at Newcastle and all across New South Wales, Victoria and in New Zealand so it is a very large merger, but uh, as things are turning out, it may not um, actually go through. So we'll come back to that. Yes, please, because we did speak to you about that uh, earlier in the year, and we, yeah. we did we were talking about how it's a little unclear how that's going to happen. So yeah, yes. so that's that was what happened a year ago, and in but the government needed to get the support of Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party to get the changes through the Senate. So they did a deal with Pauline Hanson, and the deal was really all about the ABC, nothing to do with commercial uh, media at all. And <coughs> Pauline Hanson exacted a price for her support, and the price included an inquiry into the ABC, which has just been completed. It's a, an inquiry into what is called the ABC's competitive neutrality. Oh, that yes. Was, that was completed in... <laughs> September, 
has yes. been with the minister since the 30th of September, but hasn't seen the light of day yet. Mm. They, she also uh, required a cut in the ABC's funding, which was delivered, an $84 million cut to the ABC's funding. Uh, she demanded that the government uh, p- uh, force the ABC to disclose the salaries of its top presenters, and that hasn't happened because the ABC, although it's been pressured by the government, has refused to do it. So there were these, there was this, this was the deal that got the, the changes through. So the, the next step that happened was that the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission had to have a look at the competition effects of this Fairfax Channel 9 merger, and only last week they produced their report on that. And they said, well, it's not ideal because it means that basically we're going basically down to about three or four media voices in Australia, main media voices. Um, but it doesn't have uh, too bad a competition effect on the advertising market. So basically, they said it can go ahead because it's not going to lessen commercial competition, even if it's going to mean um, a greater concentration of media power. And and I understand that Australia has already already had, before this bill, a fair concentration of media power in a few operators. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the most concentrated media markets in the world, certainly in, in, among Western democracies, it is the most concentrated. So uh, that was a problem for the ACCC because, you see, they basically look at the economics. They're, they're not equipped by law or by skill to look at things like uh, diversity of voice or um, uh, the effect on uh, on news coverage. They simply can't do that sort of thing. They have to look at economic consequences. So they were unenthusiastic, but they couldn't find a reason to say that the merger couldn't go ahead. So they, they weren't equipped to look at the effect on democracy? No, no, they weren't. No, they're not. And they didn't make any pretense about that. I, I think the ACCC did the best they could in a very difficult situation because the government had produced this law which allowed this to happen, the ACCC would have needed a very strong argument to, uh, to block it. So they couldn't find that argument, so they, they let it go ahead. Uh, the, but it's, the, the game's not over because the merger still has to be approved by the shareholders of Nine and Fairfax. No. And <laughs> that's, that won't happen until the 1st of December. And the problem there is that the share prices of both the companies have gone down. Oh. So that raises, for Channel 9, that's a problem because their own share price has gone down, which suggests their shareholders think this is probably a bad deal. And Fairfax's price has gone down, which only reinforces that point because it means that nine shareholders will think they'd pay too much for it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's all all about the money. Uh, uh, You know, the game isn't over yet, Uh, although you suspect that it probably will happen, but there's nothing certain about it. Mm. Dennis, you're talking to Dean here. You you talked about, you know, the the changes in technology, I guess the government justification, but also some of the implications. Um, Are we likely to see more of of, of this in the future? And if so, what sorts of changes will we be seeing? 
Well, I think most of the uh, most of the extra action, or the new action, will be in respect of those regional newspapers I spoke about. I mean, Fairfax ran an awful lot of them, and uh, the Channel Nine people made it clear right on day one. Hugh Marks, their chief executive, said uh, basically that the regional newspapers and the New Zealand newspapers don't figure in the future, as far as he could see it. So, what the next thing that's likely to happen is that if the merger is completed on the 1st of December, then uh, what will happen to the regionals? And it's possible they'll be sold off in bits and pieces. They might be sold off to local TV channels. They might be sold off in little bundles. God knows. But it does mean that the future of regional newspapers, in mainly in Victoria and New South Wales, is, uh, is very much up for grabs. Well, that, this is this is really interesting. I mean, there could be some positives for that. I mean, it could result in more diversity, do you think, or not? I don't think it's likely. Uh, I think that what's likely to happen is that um, the uh, that some of the larger local or regional newspaper owners uh, might try to pick up a few titles that are in you know, in neighbouring districts to their own, or they might be picked up by local television channels. See, Wynn Television, which has this huge regional network, it may, may well decide to try to pick up a whole bunch of regional newspapers in this broadcast district, and in that way, uh, basically uh, centralise news operations for both print and television, which would be a further reduction in local right. voice. So it's something to keep an eye on, and particularly with, uh, you know, coming up in December, early December. But sure. from what you're saying, it's it's continuing, it's moving, it's, continu- it's in well, motion. It's continuing to move. Of course, there's always the possibility that the Fairfax 9 thing falls over. And if that happened, then uh, it's, it's possible that each of the big titles, the Fin Review, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age, might be sold off separately. Right. Now that, and that, in my view, would actually be quite good. Okay. Um, well, we, 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 might, we might end there, Dennis, on, on that positive note. <laughs> and, and, and I know we'll be in touch again because we certainly have to keep an eye on what's going on in the media. So thank you so much for coming on this morning. It's been a pleasure, Judith. All the best. Yeah, and to you. So, And you are back with 3CR Community Radio Wednesday Breakfast. Now, to end off the show, we're going to be speaking to Lucy Honan, who is an AA, uh, sorry, an AEU state councillor and also a uh, root uh, and branch. Sorry, a, a sorry, Lucy, you're on the line, aren't you? Yes, I am. Hello, I'm so sorry. Would you be able to introduce yourself? I know that you told me that you were a rank and file member of um, of uh, Message as well. What does Message stand for? Well, 
Melbourne Educators for Social and Environmental Justice. So we're a rank and file group um, of teachers in the AEU and the education unions. Mm. And Message is uh, going to be uh, hosting a No to NAPLAN forum uh, tomorrow evening. Uh, so there's going to be discussion around NAPLAN and um, its pernicious effects on, um, on teachers, on the classroom. Um, who can we look forward to hearing from? Yeah, so tomorrow night it will be Gabby Stroud. Um, she's a teacher, a former teacher, who's written an excellent book called Teacher. Um, and it's an expose into the NAPLAN-driven education system. It's a bit of a biography, an autobiography of hers, um, just about her life as a teacher and how much she relished um, her role as an educator, but how she became demoralised through the process of, um, you know, NAPLAN and data-driven testing becoming more and more normalised and hegemonic um, in her work until the point where she just had... um, you know, she had to leave. She was essentially driven out of out of teaching. So we're going to hear from her tomorrow, um, but also Brendan Murray, who um, is also a really esteemed educator. Um, he's the former principal of Parkville College um, and a really outspoken individual um, who has not only stood up to the Department of Education and, and also the Department of Justice around what they were trying to do incarcerating children in, in adult jails, um, but also in terms of making sure that schools are welcoming places for all students um, and he's going to be speaking about the way that NAPLAN has really pernicious influence over over the education of um, Indigenous students and, um, you know, the way that standardisation in general becomes a really racist mechanism to exclude students. So that that will be two of the, um, two of the speakers um, on the platform tomorrow night. Mm. And so can we um, remind our listeners when the when and where the, the forum is going to be? That's at 6.30pm at the Multicultural Hub tomorrow night, so Thursday night, and the Multicultural Hub is just exactly opposite Victoria Market on Elizabeth Street. Yeah, you can get there quite easily by any of the trams running up and down Elizabeth Street, so um, definitely turn up if you are interested in hearing about... Um, the, the, the impact that NAPLAN has on our classrooms. Now, um, I also asked you come, to come onto the show to tell us about the teachers' walk-off that is slated for the 20th of November. Um, it, it seems like the AEU strongly believes that teachers have a role in furthering, um, in, in combating racism, which is exactly what um, detention of children in Manasanaru represents. Um, can you tell us a bit about the walk-off? Yeah, so um, teachers are walking off um, next week on Tuesday to demand that um, children and adults are released from from the offshore camps and and to call on the government also to um, bring all of those people into our communities. So not in onshore prisons, as some of the people who've been taken off Nauru have been put um, in in MITRE detention centre in Broadmeadows. Some of the kids there are still not going to school. We want them in the communities. Um, And so we have organised a walk-off, so teachers walking out of school around lunchtime to meet in the city at 2.30pm for a big protest. Um, this is a big move. Um, you know, the union movement and teachers have definitely been behind and campaigning around teach, uh, refugee rights for years now, um, but we haven't um, taken the move of, of organising a walkout before. So, um, yeah, it's it's a sign of escalation. It's a sign of the extent to which um, teachers and, and the community more generally is really hostile to what the government is doing 
in the camps. Um, and I guess it's an acknowledgement that we have to take what's happening really, really seriously and, and, and take responsibility for it in a serious way and, and commit to um, challenging the government over it with, the, with, with industrial action like a walk-off. Absolutely. So if um, any educators are listening or if families of teachers uh, want to hear more about um, the walk-off and how they can get involved, I mean, it sounds fairly clear it's a walk-off, but if they want to be part of an organised action, mm-hmm. how, they can, how can they learn more? So um, check out the Teachers for Refugees Facebook page. Um, the, the event is up there. Or um, if you Google Teachers for Refugees, there's a, a website that has a bit of a how-to guide. Um, of how to um, how to walk off, how to organise a contingent of teachers from your school to walk off, and there's also numbers that you can call if you're a parent um, to encourage the principal of of um, the school that your child goes to, or the Department of Education more generally, to allow teachers um, to take this day off or to take the afternoon off to um, to make this point heard. Absolutely. Lucy Honan, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. We'll put up all the links on our website. Uh, Best of luck with the walk-off. Thanks, Will. Bye. Uh, you've been listening to 3CR Community Radio. That's our show. That's uh, it. Quick yeah. one. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I know. Um, a lot of lot going on. We Around don't actually have time even to to run through <laughs> all of the stuff that we've we've seen today. But go on 3cr.org.au forward slash Wednesday breakfast and you'll hear it. Absolutely. Or- forward slash Wednesday hyphen breakfast. Um, I'm Will. I'm Judith. Ding. And uh, you folks have a beautiful week. We'll uh, we'll see you around. And thanks to all our presenters, people who came in today. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.